I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, uh, verses 19 to 22, and then Bajan's going to come up. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. If you happen to be here in early October, you'll remember that we launched our vision series as a church. And we said our vision this year is growing in Christ as a church for the city. This part of Ephesians that we're looking at right now is all about the church. What does it mean to be growing as a church? We started that last week. We're continuing today and we'll actually be thinking about it for the next few months. What does it mean to be growing as a church? And since this is early in that section of Ephesians, thinking about the church, here's the outline for today's teaching, which I think summarizes the passage. We're going to see first, what is the church? Second, why does the church matter? And then third, what makes the church possible? What is the church? Why does it matter? And how is the church possible? So let's take a look. First, what is the church? Now, the passage that you just heard read, the Apostle Paul gives three metaphors for the church, three pictures, if you would, to describe what a church is or what a church should be. Do you see the metaphors? Verse 19, he says, citizens of God's kingdom, so citizenship. The second is he says, you're a family, members of God's household. That's also verse 19. And then verses 20 through 22, he says, temple, you're a temple. Three pictures, three metaphors to say this is what a church is. These are not the only metaphors in the Bible, but they're the ones he focuses on here in this passage. And so what I want to do for a few minutes, if we ask the question, what's the church? According to Ephesians 2, Paul would say, citizenship, family, temple. Let's go through each of those, and as we do, we'll kind of draw out some implications for what this means for us as a local church in London today. So first, what do we see about this idea of citizenship? Now, to be a citizen is to have your origin, you might say your identity, your allegiance to a certain nation or to a certain place. That's where you get your ultimate sense of identity. And Paul here in Ephesians 2 is saying something just briefly that he unpacks in other parts of the New Testament. Namely, if you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, you are given citizenship in the kingdom of God, the city of God. That, he says, should become for the Christian your place of ultimate identity. That's where your strongest allegiance should be to God's city, to God's kingdom. That means God's ideals, God's values, God's purposes. That should be what you live for. You're a citizen of God's city. Now, practically, what does that mean for a church like ours in London today? London's interesting because it's a very international city. My wife and I used to live in New York, and New York was very diverse. But when we moved here, we realized, wow, London is, as it actually is, the most international city in the world. 
And what we mean by that is people move here from all over the globe. They come and make home in London. And maybe you've had this experience. If you're not native, if you're not born here, if you've come from somewhere else, maybe you've had the experience of meeting someone else in London who's also from the country from whence you came. And you know that no matter how different you are, as soon as you meet somebody who's from where you're from, you instantly feel a kind of connection. Maybe it's ease of language and speaking. Maybe you start talking about a certain kind of food that you miss that you can probably find it somewhere in the city. Maybe there's a shared history. Maybe there's even some trials that your nation went through and that created a kind of bond or a shared connection. So in a moment, instantly, with persons that you might be really different from, if you're from the same place, if you have the same citizenship, no matter how different you are, that thing you have in common creates a deep sense of connection. And Paul says, what is the church? It's made up of people who are citizens of God's city. That means no matter how different we are, we are very different. You look around this room, you get to know each other. We're really different racially, gender, demographic, income levels, the kinds of jobs, maybe the political ideologies we have, really different. But what we have in common, if you're a Christian, is that you're part of God's city. Your citizenship is in heaven. And that gives us a kind of instantaneous, it should give us an instantaneous kind of connection with other Christians. So the challenge is to say, is our citizenship ultimately our greatest allegiance to God's kingdom? Because if it is, then we should be able to get along with, to celebrate, and to enjoy any other person who's a Christian, no matter how different we are. And if we can't, if we find ourselves facing division and discord, I can't get along with so-and-so, I won't be in relationship with them, we have to ask, is our citizenship in heaven really the most formative thing about us? Citizenship. Second, though, that's the first metaphor. The second Paul gives us is that of family. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about this in Ephesians chapter 1, but here's the principle that Paul's evoking. He says in verse 19, you're members of God's household. That's family language. What Paul's saying is, we said this a lot in Ephesians chapter 1 a few weeks ago, when you become a Christian, you're adopted into God's family. Jesus, through his death, actually brings you, he transfers you into a new family in which God becomes your father. But guess what? <laughs> the moment God becomes your father, you also get brothers and sisters. You also get brothers and sisters. Now, what does that mean for us today if we're really a family? I have a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. And when I was one years old, my parents did not sit me down and say, Bishan, we have something we need to talk to you about. We're thinking about having another child, but before we do, we'd like to get your opinion. Because if we have another child, that's going to dramatically change the rest of your life. If we have another child, that little boy or little girl is going to become your sibling. And that means they're going to want to take your stuff and you're going to have to learn patience and they want to be around you. And then when you get older, there's going to be real problems and real joys. And those joys are going to become your joys and those problems are going to become your problems. So, Bijan, do you want to have a brother or sister? My parents did not sit me down and have that conversation. They just kind of went for it. And now I have a brother. 
And you know what? His problems have been my problems. And his joys have been my joys. And I never chose him. He was chosen for me. If you're a Christian, God chooses your brothers and sisters, not you. And you know what that means practically? There are people in the church. There are people in this church. There are some people in your small group, if you're part of a CG here at RCL. There are some people in your small group that when you meet them, you would say, I would choose you for a friend. And there are other people that you would never say that about. And some of you have really tight relationships with brothers and sisters. Some of you don't. Very difficult relationships. But what makes someone a brother or sister is that they were chosen for you. And because of that, they have a claim on you. And you have a claim on them. We belong. You belong to your family. Sometimes we might choose them. And sometimes we might not. But one of the things that we as a church need to grasp, if we take this metaphor seriously, is that we honor our Father, God, by loving those who he's brought into our church. No matter how different they are, no matter how difficult they are, no matter how little it might seem like you have in common, he chose them for us. And you know, this year we're thinking about what does it mean to grow as a church? When you learn to love brothers and sisters in the church, not because you get something from them, not because you have tons in common with them, but just because they're a brother or sister, we actually grow and we start to become really mature as a church. Because you know, when you're thinking about a friendship or when you're thinking about even a romantic interest, what are you looking for? Well, at some level, your love and a friendship or love even in romance is actually kind of selfish honestly, because you're looking for the way a person makes you feel, or you're looking for something you can get out of someone, or at least something you have in common. Oh, we both love this. Let's be friends. But how do you love someone that you have nothing in common with and you don't stand to benefit from? When you learn to love people like that, the people who just happen to be there, That's a strange and beautiful kind of love. It's the most disinterested kind of love because it's learning to love somebody just for their own sake and not because of what you get from them. C.S. Lewis, writing about this particular kind of love, put it this way. He said, in my experience, you first notice, then endure, then smile at, then enjoy, and finally appreciate the people who just happened to be there. Were they made for us? Thank heavens, no. They are themselves, odder than you could have believed and worth far more than you could have guessed. Are you loving anyone like that? The people who just happened to be there. You might not have chosen them for a friend, but their brother or sister. It's part of what it means to be a family. This is part of what it means to be the church. Citizenship, family, third image, and the one Paul spends the most time on, verses 20 through 22, he talks and says, you're a temple. You're a temple. Now, what's a temple? It's where God dwelt, the dwelling place of God. The temple was the meeting place of heaven and earth. It's where heaven and earth collided. And what Paul's doing here in Ephesians 2 is he's summarizing profound teaching of the New Testament. He's saying, Jesus is the true temple. He's the ultimate meeting place of heaven and earth. He's God among us. And now if you're a Christian, 
You're in Christ. You're the body of Christ. And that means you're a temple. You're the temple. And so what Paul's saying is, Reality Church London, like this local church, is meant to be a meeting place of heaven and earth in London. That when people come here for worship on Sunday, or when you interact with them as the church scattered throughout the city, we are temple. We are the place, the people in which God dwells and makes his presence known. There are so many implications from this. I'm tempted to preach a series of sermons just on this idea of temple. And who knows, I might. But let me just quickly, it's going to be like fire hose drinking, but let me just quickly tell you a couple of implications. First, if Paul's saying the people of God are temple, then get this, church is not an event you attend. It's a people you're part of. It's not a place you go, it's what we are. And that must mean, therefore, that you can't really be in the church if the way you are part of a church is just showing up for an event once a week. Now, I'm not saying that worship like this is unimportant. It's crucial. It's the hub. It's the thing from which everything else flows. But I ask you, are you known in the community? And do you know others? Are you in a tight relationship with other Christians? People who know you and support you and challenge you. People who can confront you and support you. At the very least, if we're a temple, it must mean at some level that we are participating in life together. And I can show you that actually if you go further. If you come down to verse 22, Paul says, In him you, individual, are being built to become a dwelling. That is... Every individual Christian is being built together to become this corporate dwelling place of God. Now remember, old buildings like the one that's being referenced here was made up of stones. And you know that a pile of stones all by itself just on the ground, well, it's just that. It's a pile of stones. It's nothing. But only when you take that pile of stones and you fit them together in tight, close-knit relationships in which everyone is perfectly fitted with the others, rubbing up against each other, only then can a beautiful building emerge. Paul says, if you're going to be the temple that God is inviting you to be, you have to get into tight, close-knit relationships. And sometimes as you rub together, the sparks will fly. But there's no other way. And here's another implication. Think with me. If Paul says to be a Christian is being a stone in this temple, this dwelling place of God, well, think about it. In a building that's being built, every stone relies on other stones and has other stones that rely on it. Every stone in a building is both supported and supporting. Or the language we use here at RCL, if it's true that we're a temple, that means that every Christian is needy and needed. Every single one of us is both needy and needed. We're needy, therefore we need the church, and the church needs you. So let me just unfold those ideas for a second. We're a pretty individualistic and self-sufficient society. We don't like to think of ourselves as particularly needy. In 1950, there was an organization called Gallup that ran a survey amongst people who were just about to go off to university. And it asked that group of teenagers, do you think of yourself as a very important person? 
in 1950, 8% of respondents said, yes, I'm a very important person. And then Gallup did the same survey in 2005. Are you a very important person? And this time, a D, eight zero percent of teenagers said, yes, I'm a very important person. Eight to 80. And what one sociologist writing about that said is, look, we now live in a culture that can best be defined as the culture of the big me, in which everyone thinks of themselves as the center of the universe. I don't need anything. I'm self-sufficient. But you know, if you've really lived, and especially if you've gone through any suffering, that self-sufficiency is an idol that crushes all of its worshipers. You are not self-sufficient. You know that actually the real ways in which character is formed and you grow as a person is through relationship. And in your hardest moments, you need someone. You're not sufficient by yourself. And Jesus says, you're needy. You're a stone in a temple. You need to rely on other people, to depend on others. Otherwise, you'll never become what you were supposed to. So here's the question. Who are you depending on? Who are you making yourself open to and vulnerable with? Who knows your worst traits? Who could say to you hard things and hard truths? Are you making yourself vulnerable and accountable to other people in the community? You're needy, but you're also needed. And this is something that I really want to emphasize, especially for our church today. It's easy to come on a Sunday and say, yeah, they seem like they got it together. You know, they got good music and there's a preacher up there. And yeah, you know, there's pastries. I mean, they've got it together. But you know what can I say in a church like ours, honestly? There are too few people serving in too many ways. And here's an invitation. Our church needs you. Your gifts, your experiences, your passions... Now, some of you serve a lot and you're thinking, oh, they need me. I got to do more. It's not for you. (laughs) This is for those of you who could do more. And this is not a guilt trip. If you're extra busy, you know, it's a season of life, maybe with illness or maybe you're a single parent. I don't know. If this is a season where you have no margin, fine. But lots of you do. This church needs you because this isn't an event on Sunday. This is a family. And you have gifts and experiences and a perspective and talents and opportunities in the city that only you can reach and gifts that only you can bring. You're needed. You're needed in this community, your whole self, your story, your background, your time, your energy. You are needed. And so as a church, this is what it means to be temple. We are growing up to be the dwelling place of God as we both confess our neediness And the fact that we're needed, we have something to bring, something to contribute, something to help make this church more the dwelling place of God in our city. Family, citizenship, temple. That's what the church is, according to Ephesians chapter 2. But let's now ask the question, why does the church matter? And the answer to that important question is found in one word at the very beginning of verse 19. Stay with me for a minute. Look at what Paul says introducing this whole section we just unpacked, right? Citizenship, family, temple. Why does that matter? Look at how verse 19 begins. Paul says, consequently. Or you might say, as a consequence, dot, dot, dot. 
here's what's happening. And you got to stay with me, especially if you weren't here the past two Sundays. In verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, you, if you're a Christian, you were dead in your sin. That is, you had spiritual death, lifelessness. You had no connection to God. But God in Jesus did something to give you life. He literally raised you from the dead and made you alive, gave you a new relationship to God. We call this the gospel, that we can have a right relationship with God. We can be reconciled to him because of what Jesus has done. That's verses 1 through 10. Then last Sunday, verses 11 through 18, Paul says, but here's the good news. The same gospel which reconciled you to God also reconciles you to other people. The same gospel which tore down the division between you and God tears down divisions between people. And it brings, we talked about this last week, Jew and Gentile who in the first century had significant hostility brought those people into close, tight-knit, familial relationship. The same gospel which brings you into relationship with God brings you into relationship with other people. That's verses 1 through 18 of Ephesians 2. And now Paul says, verse 19, as a consequence. Or to say it differently, the church, this church living together as a family is the logical, inevitable, and essential consequence of the gospel. Sometimes maybe you've said this yourself or maybe you've heard someone say, sometimes I hear people say something like, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm not into the church. That statement, there are reasons for it, and some of those reasons are really important. But that statement would be incomprehensible to Paul and to the other writers of the New Testament. Because according to Paul, there is no such thing as a person following Jesus and being shaped by the gospel that's not in the church. Because the gospel produces the church. The church is the picture of the gospel. We're going to see that next week. God's revelation of his glorious love is revealed in a group of people just like us coming together and being a family. The church is the logical consequence of the gospel. And to take seriously what it means to follow Jesus and to have a healthy Christian life is to be in deep connected relationships inside of a church. Now, for all kinds of reasons, this hits us hard. Some of you are very introverted. And, you know, it's intimidating to come into a big room like this. It's intimidating maybe to show up to a church where you don't know a lot of people. For some of us, Being a part of a church and being in community is as much an act of obedience as it is an act of joy. And that's okay. If that's you, if you're like, it's hard, I'm pretty introverted, I don't feel a felt need for the big thing, that's okay. Obedience is okay. There are others who, and this deserves a lot more time than I'm going to give it this morning. There are others who are maybe tuning in online or are here right now with us. And even coming to church is an act of bravery because you've experienced church hurt in your past. You've been hurt by leaders. You've been hurt by other Christians. And church hurt is a profound kind of pain because a place where you should be getting spiritual nourishment and support, sometimes whether it's through abusive and toxic leaders or distorted relationships, 
those places actually become places of pain. And that goes deep and it's really hard. And when that happens, it needs to be carefully cared for. There needs to be the pursuit of justice. There needs to be real time maybe in processing that. So many things. But here's what I want to say today. As gently as I can. The reality of church hurt does not mean that there's a pathway for a healthy Christian life outside of the church. There's just not. And to show you that, think about Paul. Paul in Ephesians 2 is talking about how essential the church is. But did Paul know anything about church hurt? Oh my goodness. He was involved with a bunch of churches. Of course he did. If you read the New Testament, what do you see? Paul plants churches and then he finds leaders who wield abusive authority. Paul sees churches that were once solid go into great doctrinal error. Paul is trying to help people navigate profound relational discord and disruption inside of a church. Paul is personally betrayed and hurt by people that he trusted in. Paul, Paul knew church hurt almost better than we ever could just because of his work and how many churches he was involved with. And even he says there's no plan B. There's no other way to experience the wholeness of Christian life outside of the community of faith. Now, I'm not minimizing church hurt. I'm not saying bypass it or ignore it. Yes, we need justice. Sometimes we need a lot of safety and protection. We need to hold leaders and powers accountable. Sure, all of that, absolutely. But if you've been hurt by the church, while I commend even showing up as an act of bravery and courage, just know that the way forward has to be connected somehow to a local community of Christians. And I don't say rush that. I don't say minimize the pain or ignore pursuit of justice. But notice how essential it is. So for some of us, church is hard because we're introverted. We don't feel the felt need for others. There's real pain in our past. Let me say another reason why church is hard for some people. And this actually might be the most common, therefore the easiest to miss. We're just apathetic. COVID forced all of us online and we had to go to church digitally for a while. And if you're tuning in today online, I don't know, you might feel judged here, but you know, <laughs> stay with me. We had to go online and that was fine. We had to, we had to make the best of Zoom and YouTube and nobody misses those days, but, but we did it, Right. But one of the things that happened over about a year and a half of doing that is we got used to tuning into church rather than being the church. And for many, we haven't recovered in which attending church is seen as something that we do when it's convenient. Studies are still being done, but it seems like post-COVID, you know, before COVID, if you said, yeah, I regularly attend church, the average was you were going three to four times a Sunday, uh, three, three, three to four Sundays a month. That number now seems to be about one or two Sundays a month. And partly that's because we got used to church being convenient. And if we had too late a night before, or if it's raining, or we just don't feel like it, we think I'll tune in, I'll get the sermon later. And once in a while, sure, fine. But that's not a healthy way to follow Jesus in the long term. 
you know, can be a great way to check out a church. It can be a great way to stay connected if you're traveling. And there are some, not many, there are some who still have illnesses that keep them from gathering. But for most of us, a passage like this is meant to say, look, to be a family, to be a temple, to be citizens together, you've got to get in the habit of meeting together all the time. Because church is not just an event you attend, it's a family you're part of. Okay, how is it possible? How do we overcome some of our proneness to not be the church? How do we actually live together as citizens, as a family, as a temple? How do we be the church, the people of God in London today? And the answer is in verse 20. If we're going to be the church, we need the cornerstone. Paul's using this image of a temple, a building being built, and he says, Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone in any building is the most important stone. It's the stone that once you lay it, everything else in that building flows out of and takes its shape from. Without the cornerstone, the building comes tumbling down. Without the cornerstone, there is no building. And Paul says, do you want to be the church? Do you want to be the people of God? Jesus has to be your cornerstone. And so part of the answer is, if we're going to be a church, that means you as an individual have to ask the question, is Jesus the cornerstone of my life? Now let me press in here for a second. You're here in church. Maybe this is your first time, but at some level you're here today because you have an openness to spirituality. And for many of us, if we're honest, we would say that Jesus is an accessory in our life. He's someone that we turn to when we need him. He's someone that helps spruce up or beautify parts of our life that we want to work on. But he's not the most foundational. He's not the cornerstone. And part of the way I know that is because when you look in your own heart and you ask the question, I know that I'm someone if I have X. I know that I matter. I know that I have value as a person, that my life means something if I have X. If the answer to that question is not Jesus, then he's not really your cornerstone. It might be another person that you look to for your ultimate meaning in life. I know I'm somebody if I have them. It might be your job and climbing the ladder and performing. It might just be being moral and being a good person Honestly, it might be just chilling. Like, I just want to Netflix, okay? Just, you know, I'm done. I'm... Whatever you live for, that's your cornerstone. And Paul's saying, if we're going to be the church, like if we're really going to be the people of God in our city today, Jesus has to be our cornerstone. He can't be an accessory. He's got to be the center, the hub, the heart of your whole life from which everything else about you flows. Your identity, your values, your interactions, your relationships, your words, everything has to be built on and shaped by him. Is Jesus just an accessory or have you said to him, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee? Have you surrendered to him? You say, well, I want to, but how? How do I do that? You need to see what it costs Jesus to be your cornerstone. You see, this image, the cornerstone, Jesus, the foundational part of the church, the foundational stone of your life. For Jesus to be your cornerstone, do you know what it cost him? 
Psalm chapter 118 and verse 22 was looking ahead to Jesus. And it said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Imagine building a building and you say, oh, that stone doesn't fit. We don't need it. Boom, cast it aside. And then you realize weeks or months later and you're trying to build this thing. You say, where's the cornerstone? It's in the rubbish heap that we cast aside because we couldn't see how it fit. When Jesus came as the representative of God's love and grace to our world, do you know what we said to him? Our human parents said to him, we will not have this man rule over us. We don't want him. Jesus was literally rejected. We cast him aside. We didn't think there was anything lovely about him, that there was anything beautiful about him. We condemned him to die as a criminal on a cross. But in that death, (laughs) the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Because what looked like death was the beginning of life. What looked like weakness was ultimate power. What looked like defeat was ultimate triumph. Because on that cross, what was Jesus doing? He was dying in your place. He was dying to reconcile, to bring you back into relationship, not just with God, but with other people. In that death was the healing of the whole world. How does Jesus become your cornerstone? Only to the degree that you see him dying, not just in abstraction, but for you. Like this morning, when we take the elements and we say, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, for you, like today. You see, on the cross, Jesus became the ultimate exile. He left his father's throne above and he came into this world and he was literally cast outside the city. Like, we have no place for you. So you could be a citizen. He was the ultimate alien, the ultimate exile, the ultimate stranger. So you could be brought in. On the cross, Jesus cries out to God, his father. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, throughout Jesus's entire life, the only time he ever prayed and addressed God, not as father, was on the cross. That was the moment where he lost a sense of closeness to his father. Why? So you could be brought into the family. So you could say, God is my father and I have brothers and sisters. And Jesus, the maker of all things, the one who put the stars in the sky, became vulnerable and needy. The one who actually tells oceans how far to go said on the cross, I thirst. He became vulnerable. He became exposed. He became humble. Why? So that you could be both needy and needed.